uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, and he doesn't pull any punches. In fact, uh, we read last week that he is, is very satirical. In fact, this is the most satirical book in the entire uh, Bible. What does he call the women in Israel? Cows, yeah, you know, very uh, un-PC, right? Uh, he, he is one of those guys that doesn't care how the people perceive him in terms of his the word of God. And so tonight, when we pick it up here in verse 4 of chapter 4, uh, we come into this section where it's really important to understand uh, the heart of Amos. Because Amos truly loves the people of Israel. He, he isn't writing these words to be mean. He, he isn't writing these words even to, to put down the people of Israel. He's writing these words uh, to encourage the people, uh, to build them up. We're going to even get a, a prayer that we're going to read in chapter 7 that really um, defines the heart of Amos toward uh, the people. One other question before we pray. What, what is the definition of Amos's name? Do you guys remember? It means, it starts with a B, burden. His name means burden. And it truly is a, a burden when God gives you a word to give to someone else. Do, do you feel the burden that God has given you for those that you love? And until you actually give that away, you're going you're gonna to feel that weight. You're going to you know, get those promptings from the Holy Spirit until you actually do. We'll see that uh, tonight. We're going to read verses 4 and 5, and then we'll uh, get into this. Thank you for coming tonight, by the way. I appreciate you guys for being here. Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, and offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened, and call for free will offerings, uh, cause them to be heard about. For so you love to do, O sons of Israel, declares Yahweh. And so, Father, tonight as we approach this uh, truly uh, amazing book, unique book, as every single one of the books in the Bible are, but but the privilege of going through this this uh, uh, these verses, these texts that are just dripping uh, with satire. That this man is trying to break through the hard heart and stiff neck of a of a people that have rebelled against you, and and even us, twenty seven hundred years later, our hearts can be hard. We can be filled with the religion of the day or, or, or the facades that we put on in church or the hypocrisy that we, we claim to denounce and many times we you know, fall into the trap of doing it ourselves. And so, Lord, as we approach this very heavily satirical book, help us to see through the eyes of a, a man by the name of Amos, a, a, a shepherder, a sheep breeder, Help us to see your love for your people. So, Lord, I ask that you bless the reading of your word. Let it go forward with power tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's kind of 
hard sometimes when you're reading, whether it's a Bible or, or some other book, and, and maybe, you, you know, it's written in a, uh, an older form of, of language, and it's kind of hard to understand truly the, the depth of the humor, if you will, or even the satire that is behind these verses. What is he saying in verses four and five? Every single phrase is a contrast in opposites. Remember last week, we, we learned what Bethel means. Whenever you have the word Beth, it means house. Whenever you have the, the two-letter word El, it's the title of God, Elohim. So uh, Bethel means house of God. What, what is Amos telling them to do in the house of God? Very first phrase. Do you, do you feel the dripping satire from his very tongue? Go into the house of God and sin. That's what you love to do. Go and do it. Or, or to Gilgal and multiply transgression. This is where the prophets would have been taught. This was like their seminary. Go to the seminary and multiply all of your sins. Or bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. The, the hypocrisy of what he's saying, the, the dripping satire of every single line. Or, or the next part, and again, you kind of have to understand the history of this and what it means to sacrifice. But what does he say? Offer a drink offering also from that which is leavened. What, what, what kind of bread were they supposed to eat during the Passover? You guys know this. Unleavened bread. It, it, it represented a taking away of, of sin in their life. It, it was a representative of what they had to go through all the way back when they came out of Egypt, not having time to let their bread rise or, or to allow the leaven to infiltrate uh, the bread. It, it was what they were supposed to do every single year and when they would bring a sacrifice it was always supposed to be unleavened bread so what is he saying your the very offerings that you're offering to me are laced with your sin or, or call for free will offerings and cause them to be heard about what is he saying what, what is the satire? All, all those things that you're supposed to be doing in private, you're bragging about. All, all those uh, free will, and these were above and beyond their normal ties. These were, these were things that were above and beyond the 10% that they were required uh, to give. Uh, th this was something that they were supposed to do of their own accord without anyone knowing about, only between them and God. And what are they doing with those free will offerings? Guess what I just did? You, you want to hear what I gave to God? I bet I gave more than you. Right? You've never met a person like that, right? You've never met a person like that, I'm sure. But, but, but you see what they're doing every single line laced with this contrast of satire literally dripping from the mouth. Of Amos himself, what does he say? For you so love to do, you sons of Israel. They love their flip their nose at God. 
They love to blaspheme at every single chance that they can get. They want to go against the very law of who God is. By the way, Jesus says very much similar in the New Testament. You, you know this, right? Matthew chapter 6. Except for he was talking about the Pharisees, okay? And of course, the Pharisees, what did they think about themselves? Better than everybody else, right? Listen to what he says about the Pharisees. Beware of doing your righteousness before men, to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Therefore, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be glorified by men. What do they want? They want that applaud. Guess what they're going to get? They're going to get the applaud, and that's it. They're not going to be recognized in heaven. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. You got your clap, and you got it here on, in, on earth. You got, you got your attaboys here on earth. You got that pat on the back. Here on, you got that recognition here on earth. That's what you get. But when you give to the poor, and this is Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 6, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Which is the better reward or the love of God? Those rewards that we get in heaven. By, by the way, I mean, that, that contrast between your, your left hand not knowing what your right hand is doing, even you forget about the things that you've done for the Lord. Isn't that amazing? But who remembers? Much better than anyone else. Your pastor's not going to see everything you do, you know. But who does? God does. And when you pray, and this is the other thing that Amos also mentioned in verses 4 and 5 of his book, but when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Oh, that guy prays really good. Right? It's the... You know, the constant repeating of uh, Lord, 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 or, or those phrases that we love to interlace in our prayers to make them longer. Y y I'm sure you don't know anyone like this. I I'm sure none of you here in this room do this, but, but it's that added, you know, religious phrases that we just do to bulk up our prayers. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room. When you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Who are you trying to please? A bunch of people that will forget about you in 10 minutes? Or the God of the universe who sees the innermost workings of your very heart. It's truly a, a privilege as we've been walking through, especially the Old Testament, uh, to see how many references there are, not only in the, in the New Testament, but, but even in the Gospels themselves, where, where Jesus Christ refers to these prophets. 
These were the ones that not only prepared the way for the Messiah, but also were the prophetic ministry that Jesus actually had to fulfill. In fact, in these next uh, six verses, from verses 6 to 11, here in Amos chapter 4, we're going to see references to every single one uh, of the curses that God had warned them about. In fact, there's three different places that God repeats the warnings or the curses that will happen if uh, the people of Israel turn away from him. I'm going to repeat these several times, so if you want to write them down, or if you want, you can always download the notes. You know know that this is recorded, and and you can always download uh, the notes. But in Leviticus chapter 26... We, we, we see a list uh, of uh, seven different uh, curses that will happen if they turn away from the Lord. Uh, Leviticus 26, and then also in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28, and then in 1 Kings chapter 8 as well. All, all three of these places in the Old Testament are going to actually be fulfilled in Amos. Why? Because the Israelites have turned against God. Uh, Look at each and every single one of these verses here. Verse 6, Amos chapter 4. But I give you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, declares Yahweh. The first curse is hunger or famine. Do, do you see the, you know, of course, Amos always brings it out in a more, you know, entertaining way or satirical way. What does he describe hunger as? You got really clean teeth. What, what does that mean? It means you haven't eaten, right? It means you haven't eaten, okay? You, you, you haven't had any food in order to make your food or your teeth dirty, okay? You got really clean uh, teeth. Do you, do you feel, do you see? the image. First one, hunger or famine. And of course, again, these are uh, detailed and you know, a lot more detail, actually, in Leviticus 26, uh, Deuteronomy 28, and 1 Kings chapter 8. The second one is drought, verses 7 and 8. And I also withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain in one city, and on another city I would send uh, or not send rain. One portion would be rained on, while the other portion not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would wander around to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares Yahweh. Every single one of these curses or these disciplines or these punishments that God is bringing are meant to bring them back. Because God wants to bless them. In fact, in every single one of those previous references, Leviticus 28, uh, uh, Deuteronomy 28, and also 1 Kings chapter 8, they're, they're interlaced with the blessings that God wants to give them if they obey him. 
The curses, of course, are to bring them uh, back. Look at the satire of this. And, and you may have, you know, had brilliant ideas on how to bring, you know, water to California or something like that. And, of course, this year we've had a, a great year of rain. In fact, you know, like Lake Isabella right now, you know, it, it's overflowing, right? You know, we see tons of water coming down uh, the Kern River. We're really blessed this year, right? But what happens in a drought year? What happens to the river? In fact, just a couple of months ago, what did the river look like? Dirt, right? That's exactly what it looked like, just dirt. And now it's a, a raging uh, river. You, you think about this, you know, why don't we just, you know, have the ability to store all this water? That's a lot of water to store, right? But you think about what God does behind the scenes in terms of the weather patterns themselves. What, what does God do with his blessing? Does he even bless those that don't even worship him or acknowledge him? Yes, he does. Even upon the good and the bad, the Bible says. The third one here is, is blight or, or mildew, as it describes here in verse 9. I struck you with scorching wind and mildew, and the nine locusts was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares Yahweh. We talked about these locusts at the very beginning, the very first chapter last week. There was four different kinds of locusts, and of course, being an agricultural society, they actually had names for every single one of these locusts, depending upon what time of the year they would come, whether it was the beginning or, or the middle or the end of the harvest. And then each of these locusts had been, of course, designed by God to be able to consume a certain part. This is the very beginning, in fact, is what we see here, these nine locusts. They were able to eat through the very bark itself, the, the hard parts of the plant. And what, is he, what would happen, of course, with any tree where the bark literally gets stripped from it? Yeah, it dies. That bark is there to uh, protect it. The same thing with the vineyards and the fig trees and the olive trees. And yet, despite the fact that their agriculture is turning brown, uh, what is their heart saying to God? I don't want to return. Don't want to repent. Number four is locust. I send a pestilence among you after the manner of Egypt. I killed your choice man by the sword along with your captured horse. I made the stench of your camp rise up even in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, declares uh, the Lord. Number four and five are plagues and military defeat. What, what does it do to your ego when your military is defeated? Yeah. What, what, what happens to your prowess as a nation when your military is defeated? And, of course, if you notice the order of this, the plagues come first and then the military defeat. What happens when a plague comes through and literally makes every single one of your soldiers weaklings? You know, no, no matter how hard or strong they are, how well-trained they are, what happens to their bodies in a plague? 
You all know it. We just experienced COVID. What happens to your body? Even the strongest man are, are weakened by a small little virus or plague, right? And the same thing with this army, this plague that comes, these pestilence, as we see here. In fact, th these were the same pestilences or plagues that Egypt went through all the way back in the book of Exodus. Or the last one there, verse 11, devastation. I overthrow you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a firebrand delivered from a blaze, yet you have not returned to me. Again, there's that satire in this verse. How was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? fire. And, and yet Israel was that fire brand that was taken from the fire, saved from the fire. And now what have they done? They've actually out Sodom and Gomorrah. They've out the surrounding nations around them and God is judging them. In fact, every single one of those verses, how does it end? Yet you have not returned to me, declares Yahweh. What is the purpose of the plagues? What is the purpose of the pestilence? What is the purpose of every single one of these curses? It's to bring them back. It's to cause their hearts to repent. Why does God allow certain things to happen in our lives? Why? Sometimes he's trying to get our attention. He wants us to repent, right? Come back to him. Like I said, when we were starting the Minor Prophets, the, these books are extremely uh, short. Uh, you know, of course, just two weeks ago, we went through a whole book, the book of Joel. And, and we're going to finish this book probably in two and a half weeks. Well, you know, the next book actually after this is only one chapter. You blink, you miss, right? You know, boom, it's that quick. Uh, but Amos is nine chapters long, and it's one of those books that really... You know, you have to read multiple times just to kind of get the, you know, the 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 behind the scenes, if you will, the satire of the book really uh, sinks in. In fact, in verses 11 or 12 and 13, the very last two verses of this chapter, he says, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel. Every single one of these curses I'm going to do to you. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That, that's like a, you know, a line from a movie. Prepare to meet your, yeah. Where did it come from? Amos. He was the original, you know, Western guy. He, he was the original guy that said that. And you can probably see it in your own mind's eye. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the winds and declares to man what are his thoughts. He who makes dawn into gloom and treads on the high places of the earth. Yahweh, God of hosts, is his name. This title for God is extremely important. In fact, throughout the prophets, we see this uh, title, the Lord God of hosts, or Yahweh God of hosts, the hosts of heaven themselves, 
every single angel obeying the word of God, following God into battle. He is the captain of the heavenly hosts themselves, the, the military God, the one who comes with strength and power. And that should just floor us. Remember, and you probably know this reference, but uh, even all the way back to Elisha, when he saw the army surrounding him, but his servant didn't, what did he pray to God? Open up his eyes. What did that servant see? The hosts of heaven surrounding the prophet of God. By the way, one of those angels can destroy an army. Imagine millions and millions and millions of them. Right? You see, God is roaring to get their attention. They have been blessed and they did not repent. So God has removed the blessing. Speaking loud to wake them up from their lethargy. Prepare to meet your maker. Chapter 5. Hear this word which I take up for you as a funeral lament, O house of Israel. She has fallen. She will not rise again, the virgin Israel. She lies abandoned on her or land. There is none to raise her up. For thus says Lord Yahweh, the city which goes forth 1,000 strong will have 100 left. The one which goes forth 100 strong will have 10 left to the house of Israel. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a Middle Eastern uh, funeral. Uh, you know, it's very similar even in like the Philippines and certain Asian countries. They actually hire people to wail. They actually hire professional criers, okay? And, of course, the louder they cry, it means that, you know, that, that person that has died is more missed, right? Where, where, where they literally, and I've seen this firsthand, where they literally don't want you to close the casket, where they cry and they wail, and they're trying to prevent the closing of the casket, because once the casket is closed, what happens to the body? buried right and the, the people are actually hired that are professionals that are you know do this for a living it's the same thing what amos is saying by the way every single one of these armies they, they go out a certain number and they come back uh smaller literally by one tenth the size 90 percent of the army is killed 90 percent is that good odds? No. Verse 4, thus says Yahweh to the house of Israel, seek me and you may live, that you may live. Do not seek Bethel, remember house of God. Uh, do not come to Gilgal, that's their seminary, nor cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go into exile and Bethel will become evil. Seek Yahweh. Seek the Lord. Thank God for church. Thank God for a, a building. Thank, thank God that we have not only the, the technology and the ability to come into people's homes. But you should not be seeking uh, God in a building. And, and I know certain churches are very, very elaborate, right? Certain churches, you know, they're, they're meant, they're built 
to direct your eyes to God or, or the, you know, the, the, the stained glass windows or the steeple or all, all the, you know, accoutrements of a, of a, a building, right? We have paper ceilings. Yeah. We have a, you know, uh, I remember when actually the stage was over there underneath that, that you know, uh, uh, dove over there. And actually everybody faced that way, you know, that's the way. And the entrances were actually right over there. And, and of course, you know, it doesn't matter the direction or the chairs or, you know, the building itself. Why are you coming here? To worship God. To meet God. That's why we should come. It's not about the, you know, I have to impress a certain person. I have to make sure that person sees me. I have to shake that person's hand or, or they might not see me or know me or, you know, remember that I was even there that week, right? No. Why, why do you come to church? Seek Yahweh that you may live. Lest he come mightily like fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel, for those who overturn justice into wormwood and put righteousness down to the earth. Remember the house of Joseph is the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. These were the major tribes in the north. In fact, the capital city of Samaria of the northern kingdom of Israel was, was in the tribe of Ephraim, the, the one from which every single one of the northern kings came from. We found that out when we were talking actually about the book of Hosea as well. But Jesus also references this. Matthew chapter 6, the same chapter that we read earlier, except for later on in that chapter, Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What are we supposed to seek first? Kingdom of God. The one for whom King Jesus sits on the very throne. Who would you rather impress? A person who stands up here or the God of the universe? Thank God. Thank God. And by the way, he sees all that we do. Verses 8 and 9, I don't know if you've ever, you know, we, we live in a, a city with lots of lights, but, but if you go up to the mountains or, or off into the desert, you actually get to see these constellations in verses 8 and 9. There's only two times that these constellations are repeated in the Bible, even all the way back in the Old Testament. All, in fact, even all the way to the book of Job, uh, these same two constellations are, are mentioned, constellations in themselves aren't bad. They're designed by God. What does it say there in verse 8? He who made the Pleiades and the Orion and overturns the shadow of death into a morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. Yahweh is his name. And by the way, we've been going through the 
legacy standard Bible. So it actually brings out the name of God. And so every single time in your Bibles, when it says, you know, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's actually the name of God, Yahweh, the name that he gave all the way back in Exodus to Moses. I am uh, that I am. Who controls the very constellations of stars themselves? God. God does. Now, there, there's a difference, okay? There's a real big difference here, okay? You have to understand this. There's a difference between astronomy and astrology, okay? Astronomy studies, you know, the stars the the pathways of the stars and acknowledges who's the one that actually made them where astrology says that you know the stars determine our paths no god determines their path right as we see here in the book of amos and also going all the way back to the book of job in fact in job chapter 9 job himself a wise man all the way back even in the time of abraham he says, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Who makes the bear and the Orion and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south? Who does great things unsearchable and wondrous works innumerable? Who put those patterns in the sky of the stars that people have been trying to figure out these various images? I don't know if you've ever looked at a, you know, a, a star chart or a constellation chart. Isn't it amazing how people, you know, are able to get these amazing images from just a couple of stars? This represents the arrow, right? You know, all these kind of things, right? But but who was the one that designed those patterns? And by the way, those stars literally are light years and light years and light years apart, and it's all the perspective from Earth. Who got, who's the one that designed it all? God. And then to have those patterns go across the sky in perfect order every single night. It's God that designed it. It's the beauty of the, of the universe of what God has done. And we get to, to see it, by the way. Job, again, re references it in at the end of his book. But it's God speaking this time. After Job has gone through all these trials, it's God that gets his turn. He says, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or, or loose the cords of Orion? Can, can you even put one of those stars in the sky? Just choose any. And, and can, you even, can we even get close to a star, by the way? No. That little speck in the sky is actually, you know, millions and millions of miles of gases that will burn you even if you get close to it, right? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the statutes of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Man in his cockiness, man in his pride. Can't even move a single star. Can't even design one constellation. And yet God did it all, every single one in perfect order. 
Amos chapter 5, verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and take a, a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of cut stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted desirable vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine, for I know your transgressions are many, and your sins are mighty. You distress the righteous and take bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, at such a time, the one with insight keeps silent, for it is an evil uh, time. You can read these verses, and it's just as uh, relevant as today's newspaper. In fact, every single one of these paragraphs are what you consider like a, a mini sermon or a mini devotional. Uh, the, these are, you know, uh, perfectly bite-sized pieces. If you don't get one, hopefully you'll get another. If you don't understand one, hopefully you'll understand another. First, the references to these, you know, the magnificent uh, of the universe, and now this reference to common things that are here on the earth. Those poor people that you see in the gate. How do you treat them? Those poor people that you see sitting out, you know, on the street. Maybe even know some of them personally. They come on our campus, by the way. What is the standard of righteousness? It's how we treat others. It shows our love for God, right? In fact, those were the two commandments that Jesus gave in the New Testament, right? What's the summation of all of the law? First, love God, and then love your neighbor. That's some, every single other commandment falls into one of those two categories. You know, for simple-minded people, it's always good to be able to understand that. Then verse 14, it says, uh, Seek good and not evil in order that you may live, and thus Yahweh, God of hosts, be with you, just as you have said, Hate evil, love good, and set justice in the gate. Perhaps Yahweh, God of hosts, may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in all your plazas and all your streets. They say, alas, alas. They also call the farmer uh, to mourning and professional weepers to wailing where they, they literally will hire people to cry for you. I, I, I don't know if you're, you're good at this. You know, certain people are and certain people aren't, you know. Some people are very good at showing their emotions and, and other people are very, very stoic. But wouldn't it be great if you're stoic that you could actually hire someone to express your feelings? That this is what they're doing. Hiring professional wailers, professional weepers to be able to cry for them because of the destruction that is going on. In fact, these, these farmers, you know, these, you know, these sunburnt people that are out in the, the wind and the rain and all, all the elements and having to deal with their own crops themselves, hiring those professional weepers. What does it say in verse 17? And in all the vineyards, there is wailing. By the way, 
what's supposed to come from a vineyard? And again, satire, again, again, the opposite aspect of what the picture is supposed to look like. What comes from a vineyard? Grapes, which make wine, which is supposed to be happiness. That's a very representative, even, even throughout the whole Bible, of, of what, you know, it looks like when a, in a party scene, if you will, right? And what is he saying is happening in the vineyard? They're crying. They're weeping. There's sorrow. Hire the professional weepers because it's not producing what it's supposed to produce because I will pass through the midst of you, says Yahweh. It's the opposite of that song that we always sing or sometimes sing. You know, he's going to turn your joy into mourning. The satire, right? He's going to turn your joy into mourning. We always sing the opposite, right? The mourning into, you know, joy, right? Or crying into laughter. The opposite is going to be happening on the day of the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 18, Woe to you who are longing for the day of Yahweh. For what purpose will the day of Yahweh be to you? It will be darkness and not light. Now, get this picture, okay? Again, there's this, this literally dripping with satire okay you have to understand this picture it's actually comical if you think about it okay yeah, especially if you're not the one in the picture okay but but imagine this okay and and you can probably see the picture very very easily as when a man flees from a lion okay i'm being chased by a lion and then you escape from the lion and then a bear comes and meets you Okay, but by the way, you know, this is, you know, beside the point, but, you know, if you're hiking with friends, you know, how do you escape a lion or a bear? Yeah, all you got to do is outrun your friends, right? As long as you're the, you know, not last, you're okay, right? But, but do you, do you see the picture here? Okay, this lion's been chasing this guy. He escapes the lion, and, and now all of a sudden he meets a bear, okay? A bad day. And then he escapes the bear, verse 19. He goes home. He leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites it. You outran the lion. You outran the bear. Finally, thank God I'm home. And then what happens? Snake bites you. Can you outrun the presence of a wrathful God? This is the day of the Lord. By, by the way, you know, we're going through the book of Revelation on Monday nights that the men are. And in the very first three verses, it says that, that the book of Revelation is meant to be a comfort. Not only, not only when you hear it and not only when you read it for yourself, but also uh, when you obey it. So three different blessings from uh, the book of Revelation, but it's meant to be for those that know God. When, when, when you know God, the day of the Lord is actually an, a comfort. But when you're in sin, rebelling against God, what is it like? And that's exactly what Amos is bringing out. You can't escape it. You can't escape the destruction. Jonah, Jonah understood that, right? In fact, we're going to be in Jonah in just a little bit. 
just a couple of weeks is going to be amazing. Jonah is, you know, I mean, again, another satirical uh, book, What Not to Do as a Missionary, okay? That's 100% Jonah, okay? 100% Jonah. He was not a good missionary, okay? But what was the persistence of God toward Jonah? He gets on a boat. He tries to escape the will of God. And what happens? Does God find him in the boat? Yeah. So he says, throw me overboard, you know? And, and, and there's an ulterior motive for that, by the way. You know, he actually didn't want to go to Nineveh, not because he, you know, he, he didn't, was scared or something like that of dying or something. He, he didn't want them to hear the word of God. He did not want them to hear the word of God because he knew what would happen if they heard the word of God. And he didn't want them to hear the word of God. And so what does he do? He says, throw me in the ocean, throw me in the ocean. And what happens? Whale gets him, right? Or big fish, right? Who found him in the fish? God, right? And, and where did that fish just happen to throw him up at? Right where? Right where we were supposed to be. Right where we were supposed to be. Can't escape God's persistent. God is always more persistent than us. Thank God, by the way. Thank God. Verse 20, will not the day of Yahweh be darkness instead of light, even thick darkness with no brightness in it? If you're not with God, the day of the Lord is terrifying. Terrifying. Like you were when you were a little child, not wanting your mom to turn off the light. Or when it was pitch black and you had to run to your room or run to your bed or whatever it was. More terrifying than that. But if you're in Christ, it's meant to be a day of, of comfort. Thank God. Uh, verse 21, I hate, I reject your feast. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. I'll just come to God any way I want and do whatever I want in you know, the presence of God. Is that true? Can I, can I worship God any way I want? No. There's a standard. Oh, God's that my, you know, bud in the sky or the old man in the sky or whatever. No, no. As we see here, there, there's a, a standard for respect for God. There's a standard when we approach who God is. What does God want? Verse 23 and 24. Remove from me the tolment of your songs. I will not even listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Get rid of the music. Get rid of all the, you know, the, the, the chaos that can go on in a, a church sometime. And just come before me and worship. So many times it, it's just entertainment. Be, you, you, know, you know this, by the way, you know. Certain churches attract a crowd for, you know, and in fact, they even purposely do this. There's a there's an ulterior motive behind it because they know if their worship band sounds good, what's going to happen? Yeah, people are going to come. 
or if they put on a good player or whatever it is. And you know, I'm not trying to knock those things. You know, we have amazing churches and, and even big churches that their their heart is to witness, their heart is to, you know, bring in the lost and to save the lost. But but if it's just for entertainment, what good is it? It means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. God wants real worship, not a facade or hypocrisy. The last three verses of this chapter. Did you present me with sacrifices, grain offerings in the wilderness for 40 years? O house of Israel, by the way, they didn't. You know, they, in fact, all they had was the tabernacle. They didn't even have a temple at that time. You also carried along your sakuth, your king and your kayun. These were idols that they you know carried along with them we don't really see this in the book of exodus and leviticus but but we we see it here in the book of amos where they, they literally brought their household items with them in their tents by the way that they would have to pack up along with you know the tabernacle that, that this worship that they would have okay on saturdays on the sabbath we'll worship god and then uh, the rest of the week we'll you know worship other gods Again, nothing new under the sun, by the way. Again, just as relevant today as the daily newspaper. Oh, it's easy to point our fingers at them. They, they worshiped little idols. We carry our idols on our hands, right? Or have them in prominent places in our houses, you know. Your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will make you go into exile beyond Damascus, says Yahweh, whose name is the God of hope. Chapter 6. Woe to those who are ease in Zion, those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, and distinguished men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes, pass on over to Colnei, and look and go from there to Hamath the Great, then go to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms or, your bo or their borders, greater than your borders? Do you put off the day of calamity? And would you cause the seat of violence to approach? Whenever you come to like uh, cities in the Bible that, you know, whether you can't pronounce them or have no clue where they are, you know, uh, think of Kern County, right? You know, if you were to have someone come from, you know, another state or, you know, the East Coast or whatever, and you, that I'm going to go up to Tachapi or Taft or, you know, Lamont or, or someplace, they have no clue where those places are, right? Arvin, you know, all, all these places that, that we, you know, at least for the most part, know where they are, right? It's the same thing with, you know, cities in the Bible. They, they understood where these cities were. Gath, Gath was on the western coast in fact you know uh, even today we we call it you know the 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 palestinian area this was the the western coast this is where the philistines were this was one of their capital cities by the way e even you know a guy by the name of goliath came from gath this was the giant that david put down but look at what it describes these people as they're at ease inside. They got the comfort. It's easygoing. We call it complacency or laziness. Do you, do you know what 
complacency is. It's like it's like a grave with the ends that never come to an end. They go on forever and ever and ever. It's like a death itself that actually goes on and on and on. If you're in a grave, what are you like? You're just laying there. You're just laying there. Same thing with complacency. By the way, do you know that laziness kills? That that actually complacency and laziness are even today compared to, you know, uh, what smoking was considered a long time ago. Why? What happens when you just sit in your rear end or lay down all the time? Yeah, you're just slowly, you know, congealing, right? You know, all the, all the uh, um, you know, arteries get hard. All the fat build up. This is what God is warning about. Look at look at look at what Amos describes it as. Okay, I I know all of you can picture someone in your mind. Hopefully, it's not you. Okay, verse four. Look at what this looks like. Look at what complacency and laziness look like from the perspective of Amos. That satire. Look at what he does. Those who lay down on their beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. What do they look like? Just laying down on their couches of ivory, right? By, by the way, what kind of animals are they eating? What, what kind of animals are they eating? They're, they're, they're baby animals that are tender, okay? These are not the tough animals, okay? These aren't the full-grown animals where you actually have to use your teeth to be able to chew. These are the, you know, the ones that the meat really melts in your mouth. It's easy to consume. It's the, you know, the processed foods. It's the things that, you know, are easy to chew. This is how it's described describing it they're even too lazy to chew their food we saw this earlier in chapter four it's that you know the cows of bashan that are telling their husbands what to do go get me a drink go get me that go get me that right as they're laying down on their couches this word sprawl here is is literally the word sarha in the Hebrew, it literally means a, a sprawled stupor of satiation and drunkenness. With arms and legs hanging off the side. Or over the side. You all get the picture, right? Again, no one in this room, I know none of you would ever do this. Verses 5 and 6, who improvised the sound of the harp like David have composed songs for themselves as they're sprawling on their couches, as they're eating this tender meat uh, from, you know, the babies of their flock. And what are they doing? They're composing songs like David did. They're, they're entertaining themselves, right? Who drink wine from sacrificial bowls. Now, you know, I I don't drink, but but normally, how are you supposed to drink wine? A glass, right? How are they drinking it? 
by the bowl full. That's what it says. And not only just a, a regular bowl, but a, but a sacrificial bowl. Okay, they're drinking the wine by the bowlful as they're eating these animals that are babies from their flock with tender meat. Sprawling on their couches. Did you see the dripping satire of Amos? And, and composing music. I mean, I don't know how good this music is, you know. They're, they're, they're zonked out, you know, out of their minds, you know, sprawled out and, you know, composed. I guess it sounds good if you're drunk, right? You know, not only that, but while they anoint themselves with the first picks of the oil, all, all these things are, are young and tender. The, the lambs are, are babies, the, 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 the calves are babies, and now even the oils themselves that they're anointing themselves with are from the first fruits. By the way, these were meant for the Lord, all these things. Yet they have not grieved over the destruction of Joseph. Complacency kills. Laziness kills. It's always self-centered. How can I get some sort of comfort or, you know, reward or, or some sort of, you know, I, I, I win rather than that other person or I get it rather than that other person. It's when we complain on the news about those people. Verse 7 sums it up. Therefore, they will not or they will now go into exile among the first of the exiles, and the sprawlers banqueting will turn aside. Where will they be when they go into exile? You wanted the, you know, the babies, you wanted the first of the flock, you wanted the first of the oils, you want, wanted all those first, and now what's going to happen to you when you go into exile, when you go into captivity? You're going to be first. You're going to be first in line. Remember from chapter 4, how are they going to be led away with meat hooks in their mouths and fish hooks after they run out of meat hooks? You're going to be led away. You're going to be first. By the way, that's you know the epitome of the, the American church, unfortunately. Verses 8 through 11, I'm just going to read the, the whole thing. It's very important to understand this whole paragraph. Again, these are, these are mini sermons. These are meant to be uh, uh, you know individual themes, if you will. Uh, verse 8, Lord Yahweh has sworn by himself, excuse me, Yahweh God of hosts has declared, I abhor the lofty pride of Jacob, and I hate his citadels. Therefore, I will deliver up the city as well as its fullness, and it will be, if ten men are left in one house, they will die. Then one, one's uncle, or one who burns his bones, will lift him up to bring out his bones from the house, and they will say to the one who is in the innermost part of the house, is anyone else with you? And, and that one will say, no one. And, and then he will answer, keep quiet for the name of Yahweh it is not to be mentioned. For behold, Yahweh is going to command and will strike the great house to pieces and the small house to fragments. Where literally whole groups of people will die because of the contagion that's happening in the land. Where, where all those people in the same house catch the same disease and die. And then, and then someone from the outside, an uncle or a, a distant relative, has to come and just to even be able to come and, and bury the body. By the way, does that sound very familiar? Verse 12, do horses run on rocks or does one plow them with oxen? 
yet you have overturned justice into gall and, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who are glad in Lodabar and say, uh, have we not by our own strength taken Karnaim uh, for ourselves? Uh, again, there's this reference here, and you have to kind of picture this. Uh, do, do horses run on rocks? No. What, what do they do at every single track meet? What do they do to make sure that, you know, the horses that are running, they, they make sure that even all the pebbles are gone, right? Why? So it's a smooth surface, or, or if you like cars or whatever, you know, the various, you know, uh, uh, car races, what do they do with the tracks? They make sure that they are clean, right? On purpose, because as we see here, even the plowing of the field, what do you have to do with the field before you plow it? Before the oxen can start plowing it, what do you have to do? You have to remove all the rocks, right? They would literally remove all the rocks in order to plow the field. Otherwise, what happens to the rocks? It gets plowed under, right? And then it causes a problem later on in your garden. Oh, house of Israel, or excuse me, verse 14, for behold, I'm going to raise up a nation against you, house of Israel, declares Yahweh, God of hosts, the one who's in charge of all the, uh, all the heavenly hosts, and they will press down on you from Lebo Hamath uh, to the brook of Arabin, and all these places are throughout Israel. These are north, south, these are east, west. These are various places throughout Israel. It shows the totality of what God is going to do to the nation of Israel in his destruction. Chapter 7. Thus the Lord Yahweh showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to come up. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. And it happened when it had completed eating the vegetation of the land, that I said, Lord Yahweh, please pardon. Uh, how can Jacob rise up, for he is small? Yahweh relented concerning this. It shall not be, said Yahweh. In the first six chapters, we've heard the harshness of the language of Amos. He, he's had to speak very harshly, very, you know, in that, that, uh, um, you know, ability of a prophet to be able to dig and break the hard heart of the people, okay? So the first six chapters, he, he's had to use harsh language, if you will, okay? And now we see his prayer. What is he praying for the people? And by the way, he's turning the heart of God, okay? He's actually praying for the people of Israel in such a way where God is relenting his punishment to them much like Moses did in the Old Testament when God wanted to wipe out the Israelites. And Moses stood up and said, no, no, God, don't do that, even though he, he wanted to make a whole nation out of Moses. And God, Moses actually stood up for the people. Same thing what Amos is doing here. You see the heart of a prophet. Yes, he has to speak harshly to them. Yes, he has to speak in such a way that they, they understand through their, their hard heart and their stiff neck. And now in his prayer room, in the secret, by the way, what is he praying to God? D don't do this, God. Lord, I, I, I pray that you won't bring this destruction. And even God himself, he says, he's going to relent. By the way, this happens three times. 
In verse 4, I, uh, you know, I, I love this section. Thus, Lord Yahweh showed me, and behold, Lord Yahweh was calling to contend with them by fire, and it consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland, burst the locusts, and now this fire that's coming. And then he, I said, Lord Yahweh, please stop. How can Jacob rise up? For he is small. And Yahweh relented concerning this. This too shall not be. Are the prayers of a righteous man, do they avail much? This is, this is Amos praying for his people, loving them in his prayer room. Asking God. Did you know that you can do that too, by the way? <laughs> you, you can do that for you know our city, our nation, even our church. Rather than complaining about the pastor, pray for the pastor, right? I, I, I have to read this next section. Only three verses, okay? I know it's 8 o'clock. But I, I brought a prop, okay? I brought a prop, okay? And it's perfect for this section, okay? Now... This, this is very crude. It's just a string and a, a weight. You can, you know, one of the oldest tools, actually. But in verses 7 and 8 and 9, I don't know if you can see the whole, the whole thing here. Uh, but in verse 7, 8, and 9, it describes this device right here. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a wall made with a plumb line. And in his hand was a plumb line. A plumb line shows true vertical, always. It, it, it's a simple device, just a string and a weight, but it will always show true up and down. No, no matter what the walls say, no matter what the ground says, this will always be true vertical. That means up and down, okay? And it's the same thing with the Word of God. And by the way, the illustration is a beautiful because the relationship is always up and down, okay? And, and this being, as we're going to see here, the Word of God being our plumb line, it always points true vertical to God. Isn't that, I mean, it's a beautiful picture as we read through this, okay? Everything else, the walls, you know, the ground, everything else can be confusing at times. Same thing with our society today. Same thing with what we hear maybe from other people that we know. But the Word of God is always 100% true. Plumb, by the way, it's okay to clap. Okay, I, I know, you know, you guys are just, a, you know, we're, we're a bunch of white people, but it's okay, you know. Uh, th thank God for, you know, uh, diversity in our, our church. You know, it's okay. Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will pass over them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword, the truth of God always points vertical. It's our relationship with God, right? Now, what happens when we don't have a plumb line or the Word of God? Can I easily get confused? Oh, yeah, I'm looking right down here. These things, they're like this, you know, literally, right? 
you know, I, mean, I know this is an old building and there's been things, you know, done all over the place, but, but, you know, a plumb line shows true vertical, just like the word of God. And so as we uh, depart tonight, hopefully, you know, you'll read over these things. I, I know it, it, especially on a Wednesday night, uh, you kind of have to, uh, not able to go into depth, uh, really depth in everything. Uh, but the privilege is, uh, what does the word of God always do? It breaks the hard heart. It softens the stiff neck. It always calls us to repentance. And it always shows our relationship with God in truth, vertical, okay? So read the next couple of chapters. There's only nine, nine chapters. Uh, so it, Amos, uh, I know it uh, has been blessing your life, and it truly is an amazing uh, book. And so, Father, tonight as we... Uh, come and, and just like Amos, yes, he has to speak harshly. And there are certain sections in the Bible where, where uh, you do call us to uh, repent, where, where uh, it may seem harsh, the language. But it's always to bring us back to your grace and your mercy. It's always to, to bring it back to what it means to have a relationship that is that is truly in you, that vertical relationship that we have, uh, uh, us being here on the earth and you being there in heaven, the word of God directing our heart to true vertical. Just a, a simple device, a simple picture, but it, but it really makes it home. And this is uh, Amos praying for his people from his from his, the privacy of his own uh, room or his closet or his house and, and just really crying out to God and God relenting of, of some of these harsh things that he had planned for them. Lord, I thank you for the prayer warriors in this room. I, I thank you and I know them personally. I thank God for them, Lord. I, I thank those that pray for our elders, that pray for our pastors, that, that pray for this church, Lord whether it's the things that they see or the things that they, they hear, and, that it, and rather than, than talking about it, they, they pray about it, Lord. And I thank you so much. And the way that you have relented many, many times, us never even knowing until we'll get to heaven one day when we actually see uh, the rewards in heaven for those that pray. And so, Lord, I ask that you would change our hearts when it's so easy to point to Israel or or that church, or, or that nation, or, the, or the, those people, or, or whoever it is that we point our fingers at, and instead uh, use the Word of God as a mirror. And say, Lord, change my heart. Give me that burden, Lord. Help me to see you working in my life to pray and and transform the world around me through the power of your word and through the power of prayer. And so, Lord, I, I ask that you bless these, my friends and my family, those that are here, those that are going you know, to hear this later on or, or maybe at home right now. I ask that you bless them, Lord. I see you use us for your glory, Lord. I thank you so much for what you're doing even here now today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank